0: And that's what made all the difference. That was was a church that could be fathered into sonship. Now I want to ask you the question, are you ready for that? Now come with me to Hebrews 12. Come to Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 5, once again, he says, we've got all sorts of wonderful things to say to you, but you can't receive them because you're babes. But let's go to Hebrews 12. Therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the author the pioneer the trailblazer the one who goes ahead to make a way for us you see Jesus is the first son in order to bring us into the same sonship he's now i've become the first human Son of God but only that you might follow in my footsteps and also in the same way become equally a human Son of God by the power of the Spirit by faith and by obedience. Amen? So he's the pioneer, he's the author, Finish finisher our faith. Now we're to look to him who for the joy that was set before him sat around in a chair drinking Coke, watching football and waiting for God's sovereign moment to move. Is that what it says? He endured the cross, despising the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, for you've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin and you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons because if God says, yes Lord, I want to be your son he says, right, then I'm going to start to deal with you as a son do you really want this? just keep your finger there for a moment come back to Hebrews 5, just for a moment Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 5 so Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest but it was he who said to him you are my son Today I've begotten you, this is all this word huyos, now come down to verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him out from within death, and he was heard because of his godly fear, verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. How did Jesus become God's son? By obedience. How do you become God's son? By obedience. There's an anointing of the Spirit, there's a faith dimension, but there's a, If you like, there's a training camp that God has for sons. It's a bit like a military boot camp. Many similarities. And Jesus went through that process. In his humanity, never having in his humanity ever obeyed the Father, he did it perfectly. He came out with 100% pass marks on every subject. He was the perfect obedient son. He was the star cadet of God's military training camp, warrior sons he came out as the highest cadet who got full marks in every subject and God therefore rightfully gave him the generalship of the army amen he earned it by his obedience beloved he says now I'm able to do for you what the father did for me do you want it see there's no other way functionally to become God's sons now let's go back to Hebrews 12 come back to Hebrews 12 Let's go back to verse 5. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the loving kisses and tender, secure, comfy, lovey-dovey words of God. No, see, this is a different side to the same God. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. So that's what you're asking for. I want you to treat me like Jesus. You mean you want me to bring you into sonship like him? Yes, Lord. Okay, well, this is the way it happens. Now, there are three words in verse 5. There's the word which is translated chasten. And if you go down to verse 11, you'll find the word chasten comes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 times, because I got them all underlined. Now, that word, chasten, the Greek word is the word paiduo. And there's one word for a child which is, we get our English word paediatrician comes from it. And it's, the word is paedion. And the word paeduo, it comes from a root pious, and it means this, literally, it means to strike once with the hand or with a blunt instrument for the purposes of correction and discipline. In other words, it's the word of discipline. In other words, God says, Do you want me to treat you as a son? If you're a babe, you see, you don't smack babies when they dirty their diapers you just love them and kiss them and clean the mess up but with sons it's different if they cross the line you bring them a word of correction now I'm asking you are you ready for that kind of relationship with your father it says here he chastens every son that he receives he'll smack you says no, don't do that And if you respond, that's the end of it. Now, It says, now don't collapse. Say, oh, I'm a terrible sinner, I'm useless, I'm hopeless, I'm going to go. No, he said, don't. God loves you. In fact, he loves you enough to want to bring you to perfection. And this is the only way to do it. So you're not going to get away now with what you got away with before. You see, babies can dirty their diapers, sons get smacked if they walk in with dirty boots on, for example. Because they ought to know better by now. you've got the lesson. You see, this is where God wants to grow us out. Now, are you prepared for God to start to deal with you like this? If you go through Corinthians, you'll find on every chapter there was an issue of carnality, which they weren't allowing the Lord to deal with. But with sons, you do allow the Lord to deal with it. He will control the way you eat, He'll control the way you dress. He'll control when you get up. He'll make you become an early riser to have time. see, when I was first saved, uh, God said to me one morning, He said, Alan, no Bible, no breakfast. That became the law of my life. So uh, if I didn't have a time in the Word, I wasn't permitted to have any time to eat food. I quickly learned I was a hungry young man in those days and I tell you, I wanted my breakfast. He said, no Bible no breakfast. So I learned to have that early morning watch with God I wasn't naturally an early riser but God's changed me Paul says so clearly if if, if I don't bring my body under submission, he said, I will be a castaway He, he literally says in the Greek, he says, I give my body a punch in the eye it's it actually a term that's used in training wild animals. And if you've ever trained dogs, there's a certain point with certain rebellious kind of dogs where you've got to show them who's boss. And the way you, where you teach a dog who's boss is, you get hold of the dog once and you stamp it one. You say, now listen, dog, I'm boss around here. Usually, after that, you have no more problems. Now, that's precisely what that Greek phrase reads. Paul says, I gave my body one in the eye to teach it who's boss around here. That is the spirit. Hello? Now, if you don't respond to the chastening, and it's foolish to shrug it off, and it's silly to collapse in in wallowing self-pity because God's being so hard with you, he says, don't react in either of these ways. All you need to do is, is to respond to the slap of the wrist. God loves you, just in fact he loves you enough to treat you like a son. That's what we're being told here. He says, don't, don't, don't do that anymore. And if you are obedient, that's the end of it. If you're not, then we go to stage two. He then rebukes you. Notice that word in verse five, it says he rebukes. And he says, Don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Now, the word rebuke. The Greek word is the word elenchio, and it's actually used to describe a prosecuting attorney when he's convincing a jury of the validity of the evidence. And God comes to you like a prosecuting attorney, but he wants you, yourself, to pass the verdict of guilty. In in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, God says, he says, listen, Come, let's reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be as white as wool. Though they're like crimson, they'll be like snow. He says, now listen, I want to sit down with you and I want you to see the sin the way that I see it. I want you to see it the way I see it. Let's reason together. I want to get you to be as persuaded with me that it's as horrible as I think it is. When you walked out the door and slammed the door on your wife, that was just nothing more than stubborn pride And and bad temper and you better admit go back and say sorry, I'm not going to say sorry it was her fault, you better come on let's reason together about this, let's sit down and I want you to see it the way I see it it says in 1 John 1 9 it says if we confess our sin what? he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that word um, confess our sin, the word is homologio which means literally to say the same thing in other words God says I want you to agree with me about what I'm seeing I want you to say that's horrible sin and when we agree about it we can do something about it but while you're denying it or ignoring it you and I have got a problem and I'm going to reason with you until you see it and when you said, Lord that's horrible it's got to go he says yes amen let's agree together we're going to put that thing to death Now that's the reasoning stage. Some of the more deeply ingrained habits that we're so used to and so self-excusing about, God will have to reason us until we see it the way he sees it. Until, in all honesty, we confess it, say, Lord, I've seen it, the lights have gone on, that's absolutely horrible. I'll give you an example. I grew up in India as a Christian. I was only four years old in Christ when I went to India. I had no ministry, but I developed my ministry in India. And soon, God was using me all over the nation, and I had a reputation. And, beloved, I was ever so humble about it. I said, Lord, thank you for using me, and you know that... that, that, uh, And I was ever so... I thought I was. Lord, I'm happy to sit at the back and do nothing, but if you want to use me, that's wonderful. And I was a liar all the time without realising it. I was very concerned to have a prominent position. And One day God showed me that. I came back to Britain where I was totally unknown. I wasn't being invited to this convention. I hadn't got people clamouring to have my ministry. I was totally unknown. So I started to make the right phone calls and drop the right name in the right place to give myself a a ministry. And God showed me how stinking that was in his sight. And I remember getting on my knees and weeping and said, Lord, that's just a whole pile of stinking flesh. He said, You're right. He said, I never want you to do that anymore. I want us to put this to death. And I came to the place. It took me 20 years to see it, beloved. And there's lots of men in ministry today who've been in ministry for 40 years and still haven't seen it. They're still actually, like Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, I've only got one person, Timothy, who's got the same spirit as Christ, who's not seeking his own, he said, these, all these others, they're seeking their own and not the things of Christ. And there was many, many people. You can be in a Sunday school class and you can be seeking your own and not the things of Christ. You can be in the worship team and seeking your own and not the things of Christ. And if you're going to become a son, we're going to have to deal with this. If you're going to be a carnal Christian and on living on milk, then you usually get away with it for years, but it's, makes a lot of other people unhappy and you're very hard to live with and very hard to work with. When my wife started to talk to me about a few things I used to just get angry, so angry she didn't dare speak to me. And one day she said, you know I have a real problem because I believe I want to talk to you about certain things and you just go into a rage and and walk out the house. So I said, well I've got a problem. You see I I had deep insecurity. She had her problems too for that matter. But if we were going to get anywhere we had to get into some sort of reality with each other. But I was so sensitive and I was so horribly cutting with my tongue, I used to leave her cut to pieces. I said to her, look dear, I'm, I'm battling with deep ingrained habits. I said, look, if you feel you've really got to say something to me from God, I said, fire the bullet and then run. <laughs> I said, don't stay there! And it would take me half an hour, three hours, maybe even a day sometimes, to process what she'd said until I could see it the way that God wanted me to see it. Then I could say, love, thank you for saying that. Now, thank God those days are over, but they were horrible days. That's the reasoning of the Lord. Come, let's reason together. And in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it uses this same word, elenchio, come, let's reason together. I want you to see sin the way I see it and if you, will, if you will come to see sin the way I see it and agree with me about how obnoxious it is then it's possible for me to turn that area of failure into an area of glory. The, the red sin will become like wool, it will become like snow. If you confess your sin then I'm faithful and I'm just to forgive and to cleanse. So it just isn't an issue anymore. Why live with sin when you can get rid of it? But you've got to get real and honest about it. Now the third word in that Hebrews 12.5 is the third process. It says that he scourges every son. That's such a horrible word in Greek. I don't even want to tell you what it means. It means to flog with the whip with bones in it until the flesh starts getting torn apart you see if God can't get you to hear the slap on the wrist, if God can't get you to to reason to the place where you see it the way he sees it then he will take his scourge and he will scourge you because he loves you and he will cause your world to collapse and I've watched over four years it's happened once in my life never again do I want to go into God's woodshed I remember many of you know Jamie Buckingham what a wonderful man of God he was well over his typewriter in his office he had this this sort of text which said he who the lord loves he knocks the hell out of <laughs> <laughs> have any of you ever seen that he who the lord loves he knocks the hell out of now are you prepared for god to knock the hell out of you because sons don't have a polluted personality they're free it's a process. And so we saying, God, I want to become your son. He says, I want you to become my son. Lord, I want to do all the works of Jesus. He says, I want you to do all the works of Jesus. Lord, I want to have the same prayer life. I want to have the same intimacy. I want to be as much a territory as ever. He says, I want all these things for you too. Now, can I change from giving you milk? giving you meat, can I change from having to mother you all the time can I now bring in father love and father discipline to bring you to maturity and can I start the process right now, I tell you I know how to handle you, I won't take it too hard, I won't take you too far I, I know how to handle you will you trust me and will you respond quickly if I just give you a little slap on the wrist and you say, Amen Lord, that's it then I don't need to go any further if you won't receive the slap on the wrist then we're going to have to reason together and if we if you won't respond to the reasoning then we're going to have to scourge. You see in the New Testament Jesus sat down you find that Peter and James and John and all the other disciples were jostling about which of them was going to be the greatest you you know that don't you? Seven times in the New Testament Jesus sits them down and says now listen listen, you men, stop competing about who's going to be the greatest. They discussed it, they argued it, they debated it. Even in the upper room, they were still wondering, who's going to get the top dog position across either side of Jesus? He said, stop this. Listen, you've got to become like a little child. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to uh, strive to be the youngest. You've got to strive to be a servant. He said it to them seven times. He reasoned and reasoned, and Peter said, yeah, yeah, wonderful teaching, how John needs to hear this. John needs this word, because he was in competition with John. If you read the Gospels, you find that James and John and the Zebedee family were in competition with Peter and Andrew and the Barjona family. There was family competition, right there in the leadership team. It was there even after Jesus rose from the dead. As Jesus walked on the Lake of Galilee, and he walked with Peter, Peter, you see, had been through the woodshed. Because, you see, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I've tried every way to get you to see this. And now you're going to be absolutely, you're going to go to the woodshed. And the devil is going to become my whip. He said, Satan's going to sift you as wheat. But I prayed the Father for you, that your faith won't fail. And when you are converted, when you are turned round, when you are changed from a self-seeking ministry into one that wants to serve your brethren, he said, then, Peter, you will strengthen your brethren, and then your ministry is going to really begin. And so, Peter betrayed his Lord, felt terrible, was going to, die I'm useless I'm hopeless this was the woodshed for Peter this was his turning point that's when God scourged him because he wouldn't listen seven times Jesus reasoned with him he wouldn't listen so he said right I'm going to have to deal with you Peter and I'm going to use Satan as a whip to scourge you I'm going to I'm going to destroy Your self-esteem, I'm going to destroy your self-sufficiency, I'm going to destroy your self-seeking. When I finish with you, you won't even want to be in the ministry anymore. It's only a revelation of the love of God that's going to ever pick you up enough for you to serve me. And so Peter got the revelation. was totally changed. And when they came out of the upper room on the day of Pentecost, you find that Peter and John are now doing everything together the competition's over. They now become sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Have you got the picture? So if you say, Lord, I want to be your son, then he wants you to be his son. Now my question by the Holy Spirit is, are you prepared and will you receive the process that brings you down? You've forgotten the exhortation as sons. My son, do not despise or regard lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked by him, for he, he scourges every son that he receives. And if you would take the scourging, it doesn't seem pleasant for the moment, but afterwards it brings forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness brings you into the power and anointing of Almighty God and makes you a warrior, makes you a prayer, makes you a lover, makes you a team player, makes you part of my invincible body, which is able then to take cities and nations of God. But if you remain in your babyhood and won't let me deal with you like this, then I can feed you with milk and that's about all I can do for you. You'll never change significantly. You'll never accomplish anything very much. You'll just go from one week of failure to the next and keep coming to church and just thank God the blood's there to forgive another week of failure. But you'll never amount to anything. You'll never come into your inheritance. You'll never be a manifestation of sonship on the face of the earth. But tonight, He's inviting you to come. It's not compulsory. You have to choose this. And I have, I'm looking back over four years, I remember when God started to deal with me this way and I just thank God, you talk to my wife Eileen, she's been through this process. Anyone who's come to be anything in God, like Jesus, they've suffered, they've experienced the chastening hand of God. But they've stuck in there kept running the race like looking to Jesus, the pioneer, the author, the trailblazer of their faith and they've come out the other side equipped and ready for war and a terror to the devil and able to stand in an authority and anointing which is having significance and power upon the earth. Now that's what God's inviting you to. Would you like to stand please and let's just respond to God's word. We're going to have a time of ministry and we're going to help you and pray with you. But you've got to make certain decisions. You can choose to be Corinthian and live on milk and just know the mother care of God and never let him really deal with any issues but like that you'll never come into your inheritance you'll never be a son you'll never be powerful you'll never be effective you'll never defeat the devil he'll always defeat you but I'm inviting you now to uh, enrol in the Holy Spirit school of sonship he sent the spirit of adoption as sons into your heart crying out a Father and every son that the Lord receives he chastens he rebukes and he scourges but he's got a glorious purpose is to bring forth the power, the beauty and authority of his great first human son, the Lord Jesus. He's going to deal with your body, bring it into discipline. He's going to deal with your TV watching habits. He's going to deal with how you spend your time. He's going to deal with your finances. He's going to deal with the way you dress, the way you speak, what you think and feel. And he'll bring you out the other side, partakers of his holiness, and able to move in all the power of heaven. And I'm inviting you now to voluntarily enroll in the school of sonship. I couldn't have said it plainer, the word of God's very plain. Although he was the son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those that would obey him. I'm going to invite you just to come and kneel at the front or kneel in the aisles wherever you find it's appropriate and just have dealings with God right now and say God I want to come into sonship if that's you then I'm inviting you to come forward now if you don't want this no one's making you come the three marks of a son is that they're anointed that they have faith and that they live a life of obedience as you come and begin to seek God we're going to just ask the Holy Spirit to come we ask you precious spirit of sonship will you come in a wonderful way and begin to minister to all these precious people will you bring us from babyhood to sonship there'll we know even if it's painful at times it's still love speaking Lord we don't simply want to live on milk we want the meat of the word we want the discipline of the word we want to come into sonship into our inheritance and we just joyfully say to you send that spirit of adoption as sons into my heart crying out ever, Father. I want, Lord, you'd ever say over me, you are my beloved son. In in, In you I'm well pleased. I want to please you, Lord. I want you to be glad. I want you to delight in me as your son. I want the relationship. Of a son. I don't just want to be a petitioner, I want to be a son. Teach me, Lord, all the different wonderful dimensions of sonship and bring me as quickly as you can into the full and glorious revelation of these things in Jesus' name. Lord, if there's any specific issue that you want to speak to me about tonight. If you want to just chasten me, if you just wanna to touch me, and all I want to I want to respond immediately. Say, less yes, Lord, I hear you. And by your grace that's gonna change. I'm gonna ask once again for the ministering team just to come and just begin to minister. If you need prayer, you want someone to pray with you, if you want to deal with a specific thing, then we're here to help you we're here to stay as long as God wants us to if you get weary on your knees then do feel free to get up we're not in some kind of religious penance here it just seemed right that we should bow before the Father I bow my knees before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth derives its name but just feel free and we're going to start moving amongst you praying with you as God enables us God bless you well that's exciting isn't it Amen let me say it's been a wonderful privilege to be with you these few nights and it's been wonderful for me to meet Marty and sort of put him through my x-ray machine (laughs) I think he's a wonderful man Uh, but what he is is he's a warrior so I'm thinking well Lord if you're calling a warrior pastor then you must want a warrior church is that not logical and I believe tonight we've got the you know the the core that are going to make it happen I mean don't be disturbed that the church is not overflowing yet I mean Jesus could get 20,000 to come to a free meal but only 120 went to the upper room and and did what he said but it was enough to take a city, hear me within two years of that upper room community getting anointed with the Holy Spirit and, and to be the first group of people that began to get the glimmerings of Sonship and what it meant. Within two years, 20,000 of the city of Jerusalem were converted. Think about that. It was a city of 60,000 at the time, which means within two years, they got one third of the city saved. And for three and a half years, they stoically resisted the life, the teaching, and the miracles of the Lord Jesus himself now think about that You see, they were held so powerfully by demonic bondages which the father did not permit his own son at that time to kick out the way he could easily have done it but he said no son I don't want you to do it I want you to take the first group of ordinary little nobodies and convince them that their calling is to be sons like you and then let them do it because then it'll be a model for the rest of the world if that bunch that were the first group of disciples could take Jerusalem beloved anyone can do anything by the power of the Holy Spirit I'm not being derogatory those first disciples I'm just recognizing their and they will be the first to agree with me when I get to heaven they would say Alan you spoke a true word that night (laughs) we were a bunch of absolutely useless nobodies until the Spirit of God got hold of us and by grace we became God's sons and then then the city was a pushover Amen? But it was the warriors that God was looking for. I want tonight to look at another church and to look at some of the things that were said to that church and that church is the church at Ephesus And I'm sure you know the story begins in Acts chapter 19 when one of God's first sons, the Apostle Paul, went to the city of Ephesus, found 12 people that were hungry for God and prayed and that was enough to start a church which went against one of the most powerful Demonic. In my view, it is the most powerful demonic principality that rules this present darkness. And I use that present tense advisedly because that spirit is still alive and well. In Ephesus was the great temple to the god, the Greek goddess called Artemis, or the Romans called the same goddess Diana, and you can very easily I don't want to give you a great lecture on deities and principalities, I just want you to understand the situation, but that deity is very easily traced to the to the Egyptian goddess um, I'm sorry my mind's gone a blank uh, Isis, I was thinking of Osiris which was her husband Isis the, 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 and she was Uh, she had a son Horus and so you get in that thing you get a kind of obscene trinity if I can put it that way she was known as the queen of heaven and she had a thin moon as the symbol of her deity he was known as the god of light and he was called the source of light can you see how these horrible similarities there are and this great Deity which manif- this great foul occult spirit which manifested itself in these different forms it was the main opponent of the church for the first 6,000 years it worked first of all uh, in secular, uh, in uh, pagan religion then it became, it worked its way into the whole Roman Empire until it became the, it, it was the power which made the Roman Empire persecute the Christian church I hope you understand that It was a religious persecution, but no longer the Jews. This was now, this was this foul spirit roused up in anger when Paul went to Ephesus and began to hit that thing at its very center. And so Ephesus was a very strategic. The city of Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. You've got Rome, you've got Alexandria, you've got Antioch, and you've got Ephesus. It was about 250,000 people. It was a big, powerful, influential city. And there, right smack in the middle of it, was this great, great temple to to Artemis and Paul went in there and got these twelve people full of the Holy Ghost and all kinds of amazing and marvelous miracles began to happen and soon the whole of that demonic structure was beginning to fall apart hallelujah and then there was violent and vicious reaction and Paul went there in the year AD 52 and started the church and he was there for the longest time, about three years, and then he moved on. And then on his way to Jerusalem in what's called his third missionary journey, about AD 56-57, he called the elders in Acts chapter 20 and exhorted them. And then about another Five or six years later, in AD 62, while he was in prison, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. This amazing revelation that God gave him in prison of what the church was all about. And it's the most wonderful letter and it would be great sometime to have three months and go through that whole letter. I feel, you see, this letter that Paul wrote, what he saw in that letter, there has never yet been a church that's lived it. Hello, in that sense in my view it is very much an end time prophetic letter of the kind of church that God's going to raise up just before Jesus comes, because we're going to see the the very Ephesian letter itself says that when Jesus comes he's not coming for some worn out old hag some old, old woman that's passed her best he's coming for what? a glorious church without blemish or spot or wrinkle or any such thing and we read in the book of Revelation that she has made herself ready Amen so something glorious has got to happen to the church so I'm not expecting Jesus to come tonight I mean sorry but there's too much prophecy that's got to be fulfilled and that end time church is going to reap the harvest That God promised Abraham his seed would have before the end of the age. Something absolutely incredible has got to happen. I mean, I agree with you, we're getting very near the end of the age. And the rate at which we're getting there seems to accelerate all the time. I don't expect you young people ever to get old like me. I don't think there's going to be time for that but I'm not sure of the time scale and I'm not trying to but I have this feeling that things are accelerating so quickly it's coming to climax so quickly that you wonder just how long we've got. Do you have that sense of urgency? When you listen to what the prophets are saying to the church and put all that together you think man this is not the time to fool around anymore. It never was but it's particularly true now. Now the fact is that the Ephesian church had the Apostle Paul demonstrate the power of sonship before them in a way that could only be matched by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Would you agree with that? I mean, that city was shaken by the power of his sonship, if I can just use that term to keep us in the theme which we're in. And they had a tremendous example set to them. Then he taught them for three years, the longest period he ever spent anywhere. Because I think the Spirit of God was showing him that here's the very center. If this thing in Ephesus, if this, this spirit, this wicked, profane, foul, occult thing is brought down and thoroughly destroyed, then the, the world's unhinderedly before us. This was the, the battle. I mean, I, I have a sense, which I can't altogether prove to you, that there's this, this strong connections between this and that spirit of Jezebel, which tormented and attacked um, Elijah and came again against John the Baptist. There's, there's this great occult deity that's always fighting the church. Have you got the picture? And I sense... Uh, and and I better just say this, that that deity which was called Artemis or Diana or Isis, it's all really very much the same root. When it couldn't, when Christianity began to take over Europe it's as if if Diana or Artemis or or Isis changed her clothing and she became Mary, the mother of God. Can you hear me? And that horrible Perversion of Christianity, which brought Europe into an even greater demonic darkness than the pre-Christian era. And for what, probably eight centuries, the most incredible darkness covered the, the region. And at the same time, that same deity put on the clothing of Islam. I can show. I mean, this is this is how this is how deceptive the thing is. It'll it'll take on any clothing it it likes in order to get control. And you can trace the roots of Islam back to this thing. You can trace the roots of Mariolatry and the whole perversion of the Christian gospel to this thing you can also trace back the beginnings of freemasonry to the same root. When you think of the terrible things that freemasonry has done around the world. Think how it's got its tentacles into everything in the United States. Or maybe you're not aware of that. Now are you aware of that? And so there was a there were, this church was was called By God to be a warrior church. And that's why so much time was put into it. That's why there was so much teaching given to it. That's why this wonderful letter to the Ephesians was written to it. And then, after the Apostle Paul, he sent Timothy there. You read that in the years AD 68 through to about 71, Timothy was very involved with the Church of Ephesus, sort of pushing it on into its destiny in God. And then, the Apostle John, who was imprisoned for a season under the persecution under Domitian was released from prison in the year about AD 95. While he was on the Isle of Patmos and he was in prison, he wrote the letter which we call the Book of Revelation. And once again, there's a letter to the church at Ephesus. And that church is not fulfilling its calling. It's a a good church. It's 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 pure in doctrine it's got many things that commend it, but Jesus says, look, you've lost your first love it was failing in its purpose and then the Apostle John when he's released from prison somewhere in about the year AD 97 he goes and spends his last years in Ephesus and in my view the tradition is absolutely established some people would argue with me but there's very clear evidence in my view that John died, his tomb is in Ephesus He spent his last years there and he wrote those wonderful letters, the first, second and third letter of John in those years in Ephesus. And yet the tragedy is they never fulfilled their purpose. And I just hear the Spirit of God saying to me, I'm looking for communities, I'm looking for churches that that will become Ephesian in fact. I'm looking for Christians, if you like, who are going to become Ephesian Christians not Corinthian, we've talked about that, Thessalonican, well, yes, that's a great model, but, but to become the fullness of what the Ephesian letter was written to produce. And that's what I want to look at tonight, and first of all, we're going to look at the, the letter to the Ephesians, pick up a few things, and then we're going to go on into the first letter of John, because it's all really the same message. If you could come to the Ephesian letter for me, let's go into chapter 1 just going to pick up a few things coming to chapter 1 and I'm going to come in let's, let's, let's start at verse 3 are you there? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has done what? who has blessed us with Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Is that past or future tense? Past tense. So it's already credited to your account. Will you receive that? Anything you need, he's already blessed you with it. Isn't that incredible? You see, this is the language of scripture. Peter says his divine power... 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, his divine power has already granted to us everything necessary for life and godliness in the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Listen to those words. That's Peter writing that. What happened to Peter to be able to write that? You see, he wasn't writing Scripture. He was, well, he was writing Scripture, but from his point of view, he was just writing experience. This Peter, who this loud-mouthed guy who couldn't seem to accomplish anything, he's turned into a guy who can write these words and say, listen, I found something through grace. His divine power has granted to us has given to us as a free gift because that's what it means everything necessary for life and godliness in the full knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence and he's given us great and precious promises by, we, by which we may escape the corruption that's in the world through lust in, some, in other words, instead of the world overcoming me Peter says, I'm overcoming the world now if we touch that then Titus is ours beloved you see there's not only an individual inheritance there's a corporate inheritance he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings with every spiritual place in heavenly places in Christ, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to what? To adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he made, which by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Let's just we could read it all, it's so absolutely fantastic. But let's come down to verse eleven. In him also we have what? We have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, it's impossible to stop God giving you what he's promised to give you. The only thing that can stop God is you. Amen. The devil can't stop you. And when I say you, I don't mean you in your personality. I mean you in your will. Say, God, I want this. He says, well, I want it. Okay, let's agree. There's nothing going to stop us working this thing out in your life. Amen? Will you believe that? Will you receive that? Come down to verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance that word is literally he's the down payment he's the earnest money if you're going to go and buy a, a property or a piece of land when you come to the point of clinching the deal you give a certain down payment amen and that down payment says look I'm really in earnest about this I'm just going to go back, get the rest of the money, I'm coming with the rest of the money, and then I'm going to give you the full purchase price. When you give an earnest money, it's the guarantee that the rest is coming. Amen? Now that's the word that's being used here. So how many of you have got the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand. Pretty well everybody here. I can't see anybody who hasn't raised their hand. So what is that saying? It's saying to you, if God's giving you the Holy Spirit, this is the down payment that the rest is also yours. He wouldn't give the Holy Spirit without promising the whole package. Amen? If you've got the Holy Spirit, that's because He's given you everything, and that's the down payment. Amen? Well, I guess it's America, so we have to just be modest. I thought Americans were, well, <laughs> I, mean, this is, I mean, I'm an Englishman and I get excited. British Baptist, and I'm so excited I could leap and shout and scream. And I've read this before. Isn't it incredible, this stuff? Oh, that's very nice. Thank you, brother. We must make a note of that. It's rather rather sweet, don't you think? (laughs) Verse 50, therefore, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Here's the prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He's got an inheritance in you. When you move into sonship, it brings great glory to him. Amen? Because now... It begins, you begin to have the, the power and the resources to magnify his name and do his will on earth in a way that you were never able to do before. So there's, there's this desperate, almost passion in the Godhead to bring us into our inheritance. Amen? Isn't that incredible? Where his inheritance he says father I'm just looking for a whole bunch of people that can live as sons like I did when I was for those three and a half years at the end of my human life that's what I want them to be in and father says son we agree on this the spirit says yes we agree it's agreed and then all these demonic powers Look out. Look out. Okay? Verse 19. And what is the exceeding, listen to the language, what is the exceeding greatness of his power, and this is this little Greek preposition, into us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now I can still remember that when I got baptized in the Holy Ghost in 1965 and I told some of you, possibly all of you, you were here that that I was in the city of Bombay. Five million people, no effective church, the devil stomping around everywhere in complete and utter control. Five unsaved church members fighting over the property. What a situation. And then we began to, I began to preach my heart cry for God to come. And people began to come from all over the city, hungry for God. None of us knew how to get God, but we knew we wanted God. And then we set apart a week in 1965. It was called A Week to Seek God. And we just had morning meetings, we had prayer times, we had evening meetings, then we had after meetings up in the manse above the church. We just were desperate for God, and God came. Came on Wednesday. And the first person to get hit was my wife, Eileen. She was just standing up, reading, singing very respectably from the Keswick hymn book. Do you know that book? It's a very respectable, it's even more respectable than the Baptist hymn book. She was singing it very respectably, and suddenly I heard this crash, and there she was, zonk, on her back. I thought she'd fainted. We'd never ever seen anything like this before. And Then I looked at her face. It was, like, it was glowing like an angel. And she was saying, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. And everybody was looking at this. We'd never ever seen anything like this before. And then God started to move. It was absolutely terrifying. And then that night, I took my drunken wife home. She was totally incapable. And put her to bed and laying in bed beside her in our little flat in a Muslim building in the middle of Bombay we were surrounded by Muslims and the call of the minaret that's all we had for company the Spirit of God came into that room and I felt the bed shaking under the power of God and I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and I just had a revelation of how much how, first of all how holy God is And yet at the same time, how much he loved Alan Vincent. Even to this day, I can't get over that. This was 33 years ago now. God knows and loves Alan Vincent. It was such a revelation. It's, it's, It's the revelation of the Father. And I fell in love with him in a new deep way, in a way I never ever knew was possible in this life. And then the next thing, within a couple of days, God showed me this passage of scripture. I, I didn't have a vision. It was, it was much deeper than that. It, it, was, it was deep in my spirit. I saw Jesus Christ in a way that I had never seen him before. Far above every principality and power and name that is named. I saw the glory and the majesty and the triumph of his victory. My whole being was trembling with the authoritative power and glory of that glorious one. I mean, you know, when we were singing that chorus earlier, we agree, I thought, it doesn't matter twopence tuppence whether we agree or not. He is. Amen? I just wanted to, I said, Lord, I don't want to agree, I want to make it. This is not a democratic vote, you are. You have a name above every name. You've been given all things. You're, you're glorious. I just wanted to fall before I wanted to worship you. Just utterly amazed at your highly exalted name now I saw that and you know when I saw that and I wonder whether you've seen that I mean really seen it I don't mean just learned it theologically I mean it's become a burning fire inside you when when that happened to me then I could look at the city of Bombay and, and, and it became so obvious that it was his and it had the bow, it had to bow the knee to such a glorious one. Does that make any sense to you? My prayer life changed. I wasn't pleading for God to help. was There was a violent indignation in my spirit that he wasn't being recognized and honored for who he is. And I guess that's when I became a warrior. My prayer life changed. My preaching changed. And something in me exploded. And I tell you, from this that day to this, I've been, I've been a warrior. If any demon gets in the way of that one, then I'm going to be the first one in his name to punch him on the nose. So get out. How dare you oppose that glorious one? It's not me, it's him. Do you understand me? But I am, an I, if you like, I'm an executive of that authority. Does that make sense to you? I've stood in Hindu villages surrounded by lost people. There's not a Christian in sight. And there's these foul, mocking demons. And I said, look here, listen, you demons. This is the finger of God. This little nobody that stands before you is anointed with the Holy Ghost. And this is the finger of God. And this little nobody, because I'm empowered by Jesus, you're going to run away from him. And you're going to bow knee and You're going to flee. And I've seen... People, I've seen the demons scream. I've seen them run away. I've seen people saved and delivered and healed because of the indignation that they dare to oppose that man. And that's what we need. We need. A, Paul says, "I want your eyes to be open." Here you are, you Ephesians. You are retreating into defense mode because you've hit a bit of opposition. Who is Artemis? compared with Jesus. Can you hear that? Who is Freemasonry compared with Jesus? I mean, it's peanuts. And when you get that revelation, and Paul saw that as the first thing that he said, I'm just praying, I'm praying, I'm praying for the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. And then the next thing you've got to see is that that almighty one, who's so utterly glorious, so utterly powerful, so, so, so exalted, who has a name. Paul's trying to find superlatives to describe how glorious that name is. And he's writing this from prison. Just temporarily hindered by the evil one, but it's not changing his perspective of who Jesus is when you've had that revelation then the next quite simple step is to see it's not really difficult for that mighty one to take a little nobody, a nothing like you and a nothing like me, and to forge me into a weapon to absolutely thrash the life out of the devil. He said, "What well, you have a revelation of the exceeding greatness of his power into us who believe. or through us who believe, if you like. That's not a bad translation. Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted Jesus, the mighty Holy Spirit, have come to live in this nothing nobody that you and I are in ourselves and it doesn't hinder them at all to be who they are, to choose to work through me or you as a vehicle. Have you got that? It doesn't hinder them at all. And when you've got that revelation, then things really rapidly begin to change. Now that's where the Ephesian letter begins, because the Ephesians weren't really ready for the fight. Now we could look at many more things. I want us to come now on into chapter 3. We notice in chapter 2 that we are now seated with him in heavenly places. I want us to come into chapter 3 and here's another prayer of the Apostle Paul verse 14 For this reason He says in verse 13 Don't lose heart because of my tribulation which is for your glory. It's just a It's just the devil trying to prop up his tottering kingdom and it's not going to make any difference. Verse 14. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family, it literally says in the Greek, from whom all fatherhood in the Greek language there is no separate word for family and for fatherhood because in the mind of God it's inconceivable to think of a family except in terms of fatherhood. Isn't that interesting? This is Pasco Patria, the a fatherhood. So God only talks in terms of family in terms of fatherhood. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom all fatherhood, all con- true concept of family derives its name in heaven and earth. I bow my knee before Him. Because you see, the next thing that is needed is to have this revelation of the Father. Remember how we saw in Galatians 4, it comes again in Romans 8. It says that when the Spirit comes and he's wanting to bring us into sonship the Spirit cries Abba! Father! And Jesus said to his disciples, when, when the Spirit comes, one of the main things the Spirit is going to do, if you read John chapter four, 14 through chapter 17, what we call the upper room discourse, he talks about the Holy Spirit, I think it's almost 70 seven zero times, and he talks about the Father 60 times. It's the main theme. He says, now listen, guys, there's a day coming when the Spirit's coming, and the Spirit's going to do many wonderful things, but this is the primary thing. He's going to show you the Father. Now I've taught you about the Father, I've spoken to you in figurative language, but, but really you haven't got it and you won't get it until the Spirit shows it to you. And then, when by the Spirit you see the Father, then you will know what I've been living in for these last 33 and a half years. I have known the Father. I pray to him, Abba, Father, and he hears me. And I can say, Father, I thank you always hear me. The relationship between the Son and the Father was the power of his human life and ministry. Amen? and I want to bring you into the same thing you're going to know the Father the way that I know the Father you're going to pray to the Father the way that I pray to the Father and that's going to be, if you like, the essence and going to be the manifestation of your sonship you can't be a son of God without knowing Father hello many, many people haven't got a concept of what fathering is all about because they've had such a a devastating human experience of natural fathering but God can undo all that hello and he can show you the father and I've prayed for many many probably hundreds hundreds of people and as I prayed for them and the spirits come these people who've come from all kinds of backgrounds suddenly their spirit starts crying oh father, father it doesn't necessarily happen in the meeting but it happens And I remember one Wednesday morning in the manse at this same Baptist church in Bombay about two or three weeks after I was baptised in the Spirit I had a revelation of the Father which is still with me to this day. He said, I bow my knees before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth derives its name. And let's just read on what it then says. that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled up With all the fullness of God. See, when you get that revelation, you're not scared of God anymore. You know, I was. Dramatically converted from scientific atheism, my whole life was turned around. I forsook everything, a great lucrative job with my wife. We went to India with nothing. We sacrificed and we lived our life as best we knew how in total obedience. But seven years later, I discovered in that Baptist manse that I was still scared of God. And if God was going to come and fill that church and do the things he was going to do, how could he come close to me if I was scared of him? Hello. And I needed a revelation of the Father. And he gave it to me. I tell you, I I just, I can't describe to you, it, it was what, 33 years ago and yet I it still excites me. I mean, I dance around saying he loves me, and I know my dad. And yet he's still, there's a reverence and respect for him. It's both sides. The Abba is the familiarity. The Patia, these are the two words, Abba and Patia, Abba, Father. The Abba is is the cry of of familiarity. The Patia is the cry of respect. We need both sides of that. And when that's real, then, then you know the love of God that passes, casts, that, that's, that's, and that we're told in 1 John, which we may get to later, that's what casts out all fear. Hello, it's perfect love. It's Paul, i sorry, John says this in 1 John 4 and verse 16. He says, we know and we believe the love that God has towards us. and he says he that fears is not made perfect in love for perfect love casts out all fear you know in a way it will be great to die you know what I mean in in one sense I've got this passion to see the glory of the kingdom come and I want to I want to destroy the devil and I don't want to miss this end time powerful move of God and yet in the other hand I'd love to go and just be with the father there were times when he's so real to me and so wonderful to me, I said, "Lord, I just don't want anything to come between us." Now when I used to live in England, I used to travel a lot by train, and I'd go um, on long trips to India. I was a bit stupid. I'd go away for six weeks at a time, because I was afraid to spend too much money. If I go to spend all that money, I go to India. And, and God showed me I was neglecting my family, but in that period of time, I'd go away for six weeks my wife would manage somehow with the children, it it was a terrible way to treat her, and God's corrected all this now. But I know, I can still remember that I would come back by train and I'd be walking up the hill, because we lived at the top of a hill, and I'd be walking up the hill and and I'd be thinking in a few minutes, I'm going to be opening the door of my house and my wife is going to be there and the children are going to be there and even Penny the black Labrador dog is going to be there. And you know, there wasn't any sense of fear, I couldn't wait to get there. When that door opened and I saw my precious wife and she would leap into my arms and the kids would all hang around my legs and the dog would be barking and yapping and trying to join it all in. I tell you, you see, there was no doubt about the homecoming. Hello. And, and, and I can honestly say to you many many years ago now God took away from me all fear of death to depart to be with Christ is what? far better and I'm quite prepared to lay my life down for the gospel I'm not going to let the devil steal my life that's a different issue altogether but if, if God chooses that's fine with me and if that's happened to you. Then you are invincible. It was a Ro- it was a Romanian pastor that was being told by the the authorities in the worst days of communism he had a big church in budapest and he was being told that he had to fulfill all the conditions of this new regime he had to tell on his on his parishioners he'd got to be a spy for them and if if he did they would let him stay in a nice flat and let him keep his job as the pastor he said i couldn't do that he said don't you realize that we can make you do it he said no you can't he said oh yes we can we can kill you he said your ultimate weapon is to kill. He said, but my ultimate weapon is to die in faith. He said, if you choose to use your ultimate weapon, you will force me to use mine. And mine is much more powerful than yours. You know, they let him go. Now, you need the revelation of the Father. Because then, as it says in Hebrews 13, and verse 5, it says there, The Lord has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, nor loose my hold upon you, nor let you go, nor leave you in the lurch. Certainly not. In the Greek, there are three negatives. Certainly not. Never, never, never. Therefore, I may confidently say, The Lord being my helper... What shall I fear? What can man do to me? And part of the Ephesian problem was fear. And a revelation of the Father totally delivers you from that fear. And what's more, it brings you into such relationship with God that all the power of God can flow into your life Look at verse 18. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now listen to verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to what? The power that works in us. You see, that's the way to become a powerful Christian. It's to come into intimacy with the Father and let the love of of God flood all over you to live in intimacy and presence with him in a way that you never thought was possible in this life and in that relationship to be fearless of everything and everyone except God and then it'll just flow through you, is that okay? it's a very very important revelation now as you go on through the Ephesian letter people to go to war the Spirit of God isn't asking people to go to war who haven't settled these things first then you come to Ephesians 6 and we know these familiar scriptures and I'm just to come in at verse 10 finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand "...against all the wiles of the devil, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places." Now, this is absolutely true for Ephesus, it's absolutely true for Titusville, Florida, do you believe me? It's the same war, and basically I believe it's probably the same major demonic principalities which are behind the present darkness over our land and when all these other things which we've lightly touched on are accomplished now we can go to war verse 13 therefore take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand or stand in the evil day and having done all to stand stand therefore having girded yourself or girded your waist I'm sorry with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints etc 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 in other words we finally go to war is that okay? Now what I want to do now is to jump to the first letter of John. And you say, well what's the connection? Well the connection is that almost certainly, it doesn't say so in the letter, but but John was living in Ephesus when he wrote these letters. And to me it's a continuation of the message. I want us to come to the first letter of John and to chapter 1. And this is what he says. Now listen, this is an old man, the letter 1st John was probably written somewhere around about AD 100 and John was probably about that age when he wrote it. He's looking back over at least the first 70 years of the Christian church, he saw he was a young man, probably about the same age as Jesus, maybe a year or two younger, It's possible or they're not certain. He might even have been a first cousin of Jesus. There are strong hints of a fairly close family connection. And he was there. He was one of the first four disciples to be called he was there at every major event he was in the, on the Mount of Transfiguration he was at the cross he was the first one into the empty tomb he was there in the upper room when the spirit fell he's got an amazing perspective of the whole thing now listen to this old man he's got something valuable to say to us he's looking back and he's looking at the same situation which Paul wrote to something like almost 50 years earlier The same church that Jesus wrote to about 10 years earlier through the letter of Revelation. And still, that church has not come into the power that's necessary to bring that foul demonic principality into the dust and release a great power across that region. And so he's getting hold of the essentials here. Let's just look at what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which are with our eyes, with which we looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen, and we bear witness, and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What he's saying, he's summarizing the person of the Lord Jesus in terms of this glorious manifestation of the eternal life of God. He said we saw the very eternal life of God manifested in him. God manifested in him. We touched it. We handled it. We looked intently upon it. We walked with him down dusty roads. We ate with him. We slept with him in rough conditions. We saw that life. We looked at it every way. And I tell you, it was utterly and absolutely magnificent. It totally captured him. Now, six times in the New Testament... And we haven't time to look it up, but I could show it to you. You can find it for yourself, for homework. Six times we're told that eternal life is part of our inheritance. And it's not something you get when you die. It's not simply a life that goes on forever, eternal life by this wonderful definition is the very life that God has in himself, the very life which was manifested so wonderfully and gloriously in the Lord Jesus. It was a real life that in this world could be seen, touched, handled, looked upon and it stood every test and was still gloriously and powerfully victorious. Amen? Now that's the whole hub of the thing. Now he again goes on to say something absolutely remarkable in those first few verses. He said, you see, John went through several stages concerning the eternal life of God. His first experience was just to look upon it and admire it. I suggest to you, the next stage was to desire it. Amen? Have you ever desired to live like God? Would you like the very beauty of Jesus to be seen in you? Could you think of anything more glorious than for your reactions to be his reactions, for his power to be your power, for his love to be your love, for for all of that glorious life to actually be flowing through you. Now that's what your and my inheritance is. And it isn't something you get when you die, it's something that you get when you believe. I suggest to you, there was, I can't prove this to you from Scripture, but I suggest to you from the hint of certain Scriptures, that, that as John tried to get into this life, he became more and more aware of how horrible he was by comparison. And this, the Gospels particularly are pretty honest about the Apostle John. He was called, with his brother James, they were called the sons of thunder. He had a foul temper. He was known as someone who exploded very easily. Maybe that's you tonight. He was very sectarian, he was very jealous, he was very competitive, pushing for position. He and James were trying to beat Peter and Andrew to the top positions in the team. There was all that horrible carnality amongst these guys. And I guess there came a time when he thought, he looked, I expect John looked himself in the mirror and said, John, what I see is pretty disgusting. Maybe you're at that stage tonight. But he doesn't stop there, beloved. Paul says in the Roman letter, chapter 7, he said, verse 18, he says, I have become persuaded. It didn't come automatically. He said, I have become persuaded that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells absolutely nothing good. Have you come to that position yet? If it's you living, it stinks. Have you ever got to that place? If ever you move into your own self-sufficiency or what the Bible calls the flesh if you decide to manage your own life by yourself then the result is stinking foul flesh it's utterly and totally repulsive Paul said, I've been persuaded that in me, that is in my flesh there dwells nothing good and that very horror with yourself becomes the motivation to really pursue the eternal life until you are until you are disgusted with you you don't really want to die hello and Paul again writes at the end of Romans 7 he says when I began to see myself as a repulsive I, was, I cried oh who is what can deliver me from this And then he speaks in Romans 8 of a, of a, of a new life he says the power of life in Christ Jesus the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death you see there's there's like two laws working it's like the law of gravity there's the law of the self life if you try and live for yourself try and do anything in your own self effort your own self ability you say Lord I can handle this I know how to, to administrate I know how to cook I know how to do music you can do any of these things in the flesh I'm good at finances naturally the moment you get into natural self sufficiency, then the law of sin and death is like the law of gravity. It pulls you down and you start to live disgustingly as a natural person. And you can't beat it. You see, you say, Well, I, I don't believe I'm that bad. Well, you need to, well, you will learn. <laughs> Have you ever come to hate you naturally in the flesh and yet love you spiritually in the spirit? You see, you've got to see these two things. It's interesting to, to read the history of aviation. Have you ever read that? It's always these crazy Frenchmen that are trying to learn to fly and the trouble is they were trying to do it by their own effort. They would leap off the Eiffel tyre flapping like crazy and when every one of them ended up a mess on the floor because it's impossible to beat the law of gravity in your own strength. You could even leap off a building saying, I don't believe in gravity, I don't believe in gravity. It still works inexorably. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, it's there. And then one day, they discovered, I wonder if I can do this, let me find a bit of paper. Let's see if it works. it will work. The first law of aerodynamics. Quite the right one for it. But what I'm trying to do is, if I blow over the top surface of this, see it lift? As I blow over the top surface, it lifts. That's the first law of aerodynamics. As you get air flowing over a curved surface, it creates a vacuum underneath and it lifts it. When man one day discovered the first law of aerodynamics he was able to build a machine that was heavier than air and yet it could fly and when you ever watched a jumbo jet trundle down the runway probably weighing i don't know how many thousands of tons full of people full of luggage and it just takes off and you think this is incredible and so the day came when man discovered that if he learned to use the wind, hello, he could triumph over the law of gravity. Now, once you're in a plane, it's very hard to imagine gravity exists, amen? When I was in the Royal Air Force, the British Air Force, 50 years ago, I used to fly with the Air Force, and I had, we had the, the door off the side, and I would hang out the door with a camera taking low-angle um, handheld uh, reconnaissance photographs. And I often used to think, I, I just, I, you, it's so hard to believe that gravity is there. But I tell you, the moment you step out, you soon find it's <laughs> there. You see, the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it's in Christ Jesus. He's the plane. If you step out the plane, you soon learn gravity is still there. Amen? Well, the Holy Ghost never runs out of power. Because he's, he's the power. But Jesus is the carrier. Does that make sense to you? Now, that's, that's the eternal life. And John goes on to say in verse 3, I hope that makes sense to you. Come to First John once again. In verse 3. Listen to what he says. That which we have seen and which we have heard we now declare it to you we literally proclaim it or show it forth to you in other words what we saw in Jesus you can now see in us what an incredible statement what we saw and handle we now proclaim it to you If you want to know what God's eternal life is like, you don't have to anymore wish you were alive when Jesus was alive. Just come and live with me for the weekend, says John, and you can see the same life. Isn't that incredible? And then he goes on to say, listen to this. He said, we write these things. I'm sorry, I've jumped a little bit. That you this is the reason that that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. This is that Greek word koinonia. And the word koinonia, it means to be joined together in a common life. And it has the secondary meaning, to be joined together in a common purpose. He says, truly, he said, I'm right. He said, I want you. I want you to have fellowship with us. I want you to come and join us in this common life. I want you to come and join us in this common purpose for truly, he says, "I look, I'm not kidding you, it's absolutely true. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He said, I'm now living the same eternal life. I'm joined together with God in a common life. And that's why I've been able to live the way I've lived and that's why, you know, I'm just always living in this victory. And the whole letter of John is is seeking to bring home this truth. Let's go to the end of John for a moment. Come to chapter 5. It says at the beginning of chapter 5, it says in verse 4 Whoever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world our faith Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God Come to verse 10 He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. words, you say, oh I couldn't live like that. He says don't call God a liar. You can. You can. Don't call God a liar. You've got the testimony in yourself. Then read on to the next verse. And this is the testimony That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son, what? Has the life. It's not life, it should have a definite article there. Unfortunately, translators are afraid of the Greek half the time. Because it's too strong. It says, for example, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, this is what it literally says in the Greek, certainly we are his resurrection. And yet you find in your English Bible, we are in the likeness of his resurrection, because they don't like the strength of what's being written. In Bombay, you could go to little stalls in the in the side streets there and you can pick up what looks like a nice Schaefer pen, a beautiful American Schaefer pen, and you find it's got stamped on there, made in USA. Except USA does not stand for the United States of America. It stands for the Ulas Naga Cindy Association. And there's a few little little villages out in Gujarat where they make these counterfeit schafer pens, which look all right till you try and use them. They are made in the likeness of, but they're not the real thing. Hello. Now you're not made in the likeness of his resurrection. You are his resurrection. Will you believe that? You see, you can't live two lives at the same time. That's the problem. You can't live the self-life and at the same time live the eternal life. You've got to make a choice. Remember we quoted that verse I did one time. 1 Peter 4, 6 Peter says that although judged, talking about dead people, but I'm, I'm convinced that Peter's talking about those who are spiritually dead. Although, he said, we came to preach the gospel to the dead. Well, obviously you can't preach the gospel to people who are physically dead, but you can preach the gospel to people who are spiritually dead. He said, and we preach the gospel to the, to the dead, that they may learn, although they're judged in the spirit, and um, um, they're judged, let me get the wording right, although they're judged in the flesh like men, they may live in the spirit like God. That's the same truth. Have you got the truth there? You can either live your own life and the pull of sin will drag you down, the devil can do what he likes with you or you can live the eternal life which is with the Father and with you, you can live in fellowship with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. But to live that you've got to die to the other. You've got to agree with Paul that It's great to be crucified with Christ and yet nevertheless living. If it's not you, it's Christ living with you. That's not just theology, it's it's practical truth. It's like driving a car really. You own a car and you're a lousy driver, let's imagine that, and you keep having crashes. So you say to an expert driver, please come and show me how to be a better driver. And he sits in the passenger seat and tries to help you be a better driver. That's how some people conceive the Christian life. It's not like that at all. Jesus doesn't come into your life to help you live a better life. Please Lord, help me to be more patient with my children. No, he says, you die because I'm naturally patient. Hello. I'm a great patient person. Just you just die. Or if you like to go back to our analogy, no, he says, Look, it is the problem. The problem is you. Get out the driving seat. Get into the passenger seat. Keep your feet off the pedal, keep your hands off the steering wheel, and trust me. Let me take over your car and I guarantee to drive it safely to the destination. But you just sit there and let me do what I want with your car. Is that okay? Now at any time, if you don't like the way he's driving, you can grab the steering wheel. That's the, the worst thing to do. Would you agree with that? Now that's true in life. If you start to say, Oh Lord, I don't like what you do doing in my life, then that's the time to keep your hands well off. And that's the power of eternal life. But there's not true. There's not room for two lives to be lived at the same time. You can either live the life of the son or you can live the life of you. I've been crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I it's Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, I've, the Son has literally taken over my life. Amen? Can I give you ten more minutes? Is that alright? Can you stand that? Come to, back to First John chapter 2. we just do this quickly. Literally ten minutes. I won't keep you more than ten minutes. 1 John 2, verse 12. Listen to this. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Verse 13, I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the Father. I write to you fathers because you have known him who was from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Let me quickly explain that and we'll finish tonight. Now here we have the same progression that we've been looking at in Ephesians, basically. Now, it starts off with this word, I write to you children. The word that's used here is the word technion. It's not the word nepios. He's not talking about a helpless babe. He's talking about a child which would be something like a first to third grader, a beautiful six to eight-year-old kid that's alive, that's excited, that's motivated. It's like, sort of, pat. it's like clay that you can mold into any shape you know the sort of kids I'm talking about they're eager they're alive they're willing to learn they trust you they are teachable He's, i mean these are great he said, he said now that's how i want you to start it's not a helpless babe going blah, 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 this is this is a, this is this beautiful moldable clay and Jesus said to his disciples again and again and again he said unless you become like a little child you can't enter the kingdom of God he's not talking about being a baby he's talking about being that beautifully moldable shapeable exciting child that's that's so thrilled with life wants to learn and is just willing to be taught and to be trained and is, is so you know the sort of kids I'm talking about that's where you start now, notice that it doesn't go next. You see, what you don't do is you don't drop one and pick up. This is not a progression. It's like a series of things you pick up. You first of all pick up childlikeness. You leave your babyhood behind, but you pick up childlessness, You're teachable. You're humble. You're shapeable. You're moldable. You're willing to learn new things. Everything. Life's an adventure. And you pick that up and you carry it with you right through the rest of your life. You never, never drop it. The next thing you pick up, notice is fatherhood. Did you notice that? I write to you fathers. You've had a revelation of the father. We've talked about that already. and that's so, so you pick this up as well. Now you've got two balls. Then when you've got these two things, he can now take you on to young manhood. And the word that's used here for the young man is, the word is, if you want to write it down, the Greek word is neoniskos. And it describes a young man over 30 years of age but not yet 40 he's in, he's in the prime of his vigour he's already become a huios but now he's been trained for war hello and the very idea of this word is of a young warrior he talks about overcoming the evil one you know the Greek word that's used for overcome is the word nikal or if you like the, the noun form is nik- nike you know nike shoes? That's where the word comes from. Or Nike, as we say here, all right? Nike shoes and Nike sportswear. You know what the word means? It means overcomer, winner, conqueror. That's why they use that logo, logo on all their... You know, If you put on our shoes, you're going to win. So if you become, first of all, a teachable, excited willing to learn, trainable child. And then if you get the revelation of the Father, and then you come into warriorship, then you're going to beat the devil. Amen? Then he says it again, and he uses different words. I'll just say this quickly. I write to you, uh, this word little, I do not like this word little in the, this particular translation. It's better, this word is not really so much a diminutive as an endearment. He's saying Better to translate it, dear children. It's, got, it's, got a, it's, it's a word of affection, not a word of smallness. Is that okay? Dear children. I write to you, dear children. My precious children. That's the sort of idea behind this word. And then he uses a different word here. He says, I write to you, in uh, end of verse 13, I write to you, dear children. And, and this time the word is a different one. Is the word is pideon. We get our word pediatrician comes from this word. And remember we talked yesterday about being chastened. Were you here yesterday? About the paddle, about being pie-duoed. One blow of a blunt instrument to, to bring you discipline. Now this word is a child that's experienced correction. Someone who's been trained, if you like. Someone who's been paddled to the point now they know authority. They know how to respect authority. They know how to walk in submission and obedience. And there's no things in their life that need to be corrected anymore. Hello. In the Greek household, there was a particular trainer called a paedagogos, the schoolmaster, the governor. And his job was to bring the kids in line, to teach them to wash behind their ears, to put their clothes on properly, to do their studies. It was all Delegated in the rich Greek families to this particular servant whose job was to bring up the children in the way that was a credit to their father. Now God does not delegate it to a servant. He calls us to be the fathers and in his own family he's the father that does it. Is that okay? So if you're going to come into this then you've got to allow that discipline of correction we were talking about last night. Can you see the progress here? I write to you fathers because you've known him who was from the beginning I've not time to develop that but obviously when you know the father then fatherhood flows into you and then flows through you come to the end of verse 14 I write to you young men here's this word neoniskos again because you are strong the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one you have conquered, you have won you've got the victory you've beaten the devil hallelujah Paul writes this because he knows that if the Ephesian church is going to fulfill its destiny, then it's got to produce warriors. They've got to go through all these stages. They've got to be all these things. And you don't... Whoops. Sorry. It's not like growing up, but you're all these things simultaneously. You see, I'm... 68 years of age now, but God recently said to me, He said, Alan, I want you to go down a bit. You're just getting a bit too clever. Just become a child. So I'm learning afresh to be childlike. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I want to be moldable. You see, He said, I'm going to do new things that you've never seen before, and I want you not to be shocked by them. I want you to be able to cope with whatever's coming. I want you to be a child at heart, not a knee not, not a babe, but a child. And I never ever want to grow up because I want, to, I want to be useful in the kingdom. Amen? But I've come to know the Father. I've picked up fatherhood and it's increasing in its richness in my life. And at the same time, I'm increasing all the time in my young man warriorhood. It's not a matter of age. It's simply a matter of of obedience and faith and anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's all these three things together. It's the anointing of the Spirit, it's obedience to the Word, and it's the exercise of faith. And if we become all these things by the Holy Spirit, then we're going to be invincibly powerful. I thank God that I have the Son. Do you have the Son? And because I have the Son, I have the life. But I have to choose on a daily basis, like it says in Romans 8, I have to choose whether to walk in the spirit or whether to walk in the flesh. Whether to live my life, whether to let God live live his life. And and I'm learning more and more and more and more, never ever ever to say, Lord Jesus, I'd just like to take hold of the driving seat for a while. I never ever want to do that. I want to live, continuing the power of eternal life now, is has that, has that made sense to you tonight? and do you want it? and will you come into it? let's stand shall we, let's stand tomorrow night we're going to look at something different, I'm going to look at what it means to be a son of Abraham and what it means to be a son of the prophets, because all this is part of our inheritance. And I felt we should just give a whole evening to this and I trust you agree with me that it is so foundational and fundamental. And Let's just pray. Let's ask the Spirit to just come and witness to us. Let's say Lord we want to thank you for the earnest of the Holy Spirit, well every one of us raised our hands, yes we know we've got the Holy Spirit he's the guarantee, he's the down payment, he's the earnest money that you intend to bring us into this full inheritance Lord I want to pray Maybe you want to pray this prayer. I want to pray for you. Father, I just pray these precious people that you love so much and you have taken the trouble to come here this evening and give up their time. And that tells me that there's hunger in their hearts for you. Lord, I just pray for every one of them, from the youngest to the oldest, that you will give us revelation. that Lord we might in a new way see Jesus that the hearts of our eyes will be opened that we'll see the glory of his inheritance in the saints that we'll see him Lord see, oh Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus far above every principality and power and dominion and every name that is named, both not only on this earth, but this age, but also in the one to come. Lord, give us that revelation. Pray Lord will see the exceeding greatness of his power in us or into us, through us who believe. Lord I I won't see me coping I'll see Jesus in me coping Oh God may that be utter reality Lord I pray for everyone here that I feel like the Apostle Paul I bow my knees before the Father from all, all fatherhood in heaven and earth derives its name that you will give a revelation of the love of God that we might know the length and the breadth and the depth, like, and just be filled up with all the fullness of God, that every one of us might have such a reverence we're crying, Oh Father, 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 that we, that we, Lord, know the Father. Oh Lord. Oh God, do it. I pray for everyone here who's had a, a miserable, or inadequate Father experience, which probably means all of us. God, whatever we've known of natural fathering, may that be replaced by the true revelation of what your fatherhood is all about. If we've had severe fathers, Lord, let us know that the, the amazing love of God. Fill us up with the fullness of that love, Lord, until you so excite us, you so delight us that we just can't hardly contain the revelation. He's my father, he's my father, he's my dad. Oh, God, do it, Lord. And Lord, I just pray now that that we'll we'll grasp this, that you have given to us eternal life, the very life which you have in yourself. You've given it to us without dilution. There is only one life. There's not a a, a, a diluted form. It's either we've got it or we haven't got it. And Lord, I pray for its full revelation in all of us. In Jesus' name. Oh God, if we've been living the self-life, I pray we'll we'll embrace that day and say, Lord, I don't want to get in the driving seat, take over. It's your car. I'm just a passenger. Just literally have my life and take it where you want to take it. Do what you want with it be your own glorious fullness in it be the fullness of eternal life let it flow out through me do for me what you did for John and for Peter for Paul and all these other people Lord I'm just as much your son as they are and Lord will you produce here in this church a warrior people Lord may may we be able to write to children May we be able to write to fathers, or may we be able to write to young men, male or female. It's nothing to do with gender, any of the way through, Lord, who are strong, who know the word of God, who have put on their Nike shoes and are trampling all over the devil in Jesus' name, who are winners, who are victors, who, who, who've who have their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace who've taken the sword of the spirit and the the shield of faith and are absolutely devastating the evil one may we we be able to live a sustained warrior life year in, year out until Jesus comes we're looking for that coming, we think it's near till he comes, we want to be right at the forefront of the battle making the devil's life absolutely hell destroying his works and rescuing the captives setting free those who are held by him at this time Lord, will you change the very atmosphere of Titusville let the very demons that strut around here as if they own the place Lord, may they tremble as the sons come forth may they tremble it says in Romans 8.19 that the hold of creation is in agony, it's in pain, it's all twisted up, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God and when they're manifested, they're able to bring, it says you're in, in, be able to bring creation into the glorious liberty of the children of God, oh God may that be true here In Jesus' name.